So Revelation chapter 21, and we'll begin in verse 9. We spent the last three times in Revelation getting our heads around the idea of a new heaven and new earth in verses 1 through 8, which is either the reconstitution or the complete recreation of this physical globe upon which God and his people will dwell forever. And the text before us here, beginning in verse 9, and extending all the way to chapter 22, verse 5, so this is a pretty significant size text, describes the primary feature of this new earth. And that is a city, beautiful, beyond comparison, where God will be worshipped. The new Jerusalem. Let's begin by taking in this description as we read the whole text, starting in verse 9 of chapter 21, reading all the way through chapter 22, verse 5. John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues, back in chapter, 17, uh, chapter 16, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four squares and its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, which by the way is 1,500 miles, give or take. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And I'll just tell you right now, that simply means that the measurement here is the same that a human being would use. The angel isn't using some tricky measurement is what it's saying there. The wall was built of jasper. Well, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth uh, chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, which is surprising because this is Jerusalem, right? It's where the temple is. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light 
and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The New Jerusalem of all the places on the earth, the center of attention in the new earth. Now, why Jerusalem? Why that city? I mean, why not a glorified New York or Chicago or London or Moscow or Beijing or Sao Paulo? or Tokyo, or Hong Kong, or Paris, or Istanbul, or Rome, or name any other major city? And that might seem like a silly question to you, but I want you to ask yourself, how often do I really think about Jerusalem? And when you think about your end of life and what God's going to do and your worship with him, does this city come into your mind ever? You think about this? I mean, probably you think about Jerusalem more than a lot of other cities on the other side of the globe, but so much so do you think about and long for the coming of this city, this glorified holy city, Jerusalem, where you will be able to worship God forever in person? Why is Jerusalem so integral in the plan of God? Of course, the answer is not geographical. The answer is theological. Jerusalem is the city of God's chosen people. God made a covenant with Abraham that through the descendants of him, the earth would be blessed. They would know salvation through Abraham. And that person who would ultimately bring the salvation would be the greatest descendant of Abraham, who would make Jerusalem his capital. Jerusalem became the city of David. But the most significant reason Jerusalem became the centerpiece of Jewish culture is that the temple was built there by David's son Solomon so that God could dwell among his people. Jerusalem is a city that is built upon uh, several mountains or several high hills. And the most significant hill is Mount Zion because that is where the temple was established. I love the little taunt in Psalm 68 where the psalmist is teasing a big mountain. The psalmist is teasing Mount Bashan. Bashan is this range of mountains in the north, far to the north of Jerusalem. And, and if you're there, sometimes you can see snow on the tops of it. It's, it's so tall. And Bashan is this proud, tall mountain 
compared to little Zion. Bashan is like the Rockies, okay? Zion is like most of the little mountains that you see in the Blue Ridge. People from the West think they're so big when they come over here, and they're like, you call that a mountain? It's very irritating, by the way. Uh, You call that a mountain? You know, that's not a mountain. I'll show you a mountain. That's the difference between Bashan and, and Zion. Yet here in Psalm 68, the psalmist teases Mount Bashan, majestic mountain. Mount Bashan, rugged mountain. Why gaze in envy, you rugged mountain, on the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? The mountain where God chooses to reign is Mount Zion. So the greatest mountains of the world, including Mount Everest, look green with envy. Because Zion is blessed with the greatest honor on the planet. God dwells in his temple there. That is what is the big deal about this city and about this mountain. So the city of Jerusalem is a holy city. The Jews loved their city. Most of you know that there are Psalms in the book of Psalms written about this city. You read about this, you're reading the Psalms and it starts talking about a city in Mount Zion and it's, it's, it's praising it. And you're like, well, what's this all about? This is what it's all about. God dwells there. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. There are several Psalms like this that celebrate the city of Jerusalem. And when the Jews were taken captive into Babylon, Psalm 137 was written, which says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a, in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And that's why in captivity, Daniel three times a day would look toward Jerusalem. He wasn't the only one who was doing this. All the godly Jews were doing it looking toward their destroyed city and praying out to God three times a day because three times a day in the temple, the prayers would go up and they were doing everything they could to keep that going because they loved their city. They loved the idea that God chose to be there for them. The place God chose to meet with his people was the greatest city among all the cities of the earth. And this is the city in which David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ rode into, styled as a Jewish king coming to his throne to the shouts of Hosanna. This is the city where about two months later, after that, the Holy Spirit was poured out and the gospel began to be proclaimed to the whole world from this city, from this center. And you can line up all the influential cities in human history, some of them even surviving to this day. There is no city that is more significant than the city of Jerusalem. No city in the world that the Jews love more. And so should we, at least this Jerusalem to come. Because our ultimate hope, this eternal state, is punctuated by this city. Most of Revelation 21 and 22 are taken up with the city description. Made new by God coming down from heaven and being situated on the earth in this perfect, unending dazzling glory, which means that the earthly city, the earthly Jerusalem and its earthly temple 
as glorious as it may once have appeared, was only a shadow of the reality of the real city that would one day come. I had never visited uh, Jerusalem before until a, a few years ago when I had the opportunity to help lead a trip uh, to Israel. And one of the most enjoyable parts of that trip for me, and the, and the one that, you know, when you think about the trip, this, this comes back, for one of, besides Galilee, that was pretty amazing. Uh, th- this memory comes back, and it was being able to walk through the streets of Jerusalem, the old city Jerusalem, going in through the gate, walking down the streets. We got to tour it by day, and whenever we got time at night, we'd run back there, and we'd see as much of it as we can. In fact, we went there so often over the course of several days that we didn't even need a street map anymore. We, we kind of knew our way around uh, the old city of Jerusalem. But let me tell you, before we traveled to Israel and visited Jerusalem, there was a whole process that we went through to get our minds in the right place. First, we had to read about Jerusalem so we knew what to expect. And we had to attend seminars so that we could learn the protocols of being a guest in that country and that city so we wouldn't offend anyone. When we were in Jerusalem, we actually spent a Sabbath evening with a Jewish family and we shared a meal with them. And we had to know in advance how to conduct ourselves so that we not, would not offend them. In fact, something really funny happened there that night. One of the things that happens on Shabbat or Sabbath is that they don't turn the lights on and off because that's work and you're making something else work and they don't do that. And so we're all in there for the first five minutes, kind of nervous, meeting this family and doing, trying to do everything just right. And one of our team members backed up against the wall and actually turned off the light with his back, you know, and everybody looked around. And of course, he was really nervous. So we apologized really quickly and reached out and turned it back on. And we're like, just back away from the wall. Okay, do not, do not do anything. But we're, we're trying to, you know, be, be in their turf and, and play by their rules and, and not offend them when we have a conversation. It was a great conversation because we were allowed to ask them about their religion and explain about the gospel. And that was one of the deals. But my point is, before we even boarded the plane and flew across the Atlantic, we were learning about Israel and how to be in that country. We had to learn some Hebrew phrases. We had to learn about the currency, how to use shekels. We were taught how to speak with the Jewish people, what kinds of conversations they have, what topics were okay, what topics were not okay, and so on. But all of this we were doing in anticipation of arriving one day in Jerusalem and feeling at home there. And everything that we did in advance to merely read about Jerusalem and look at pictures of Jerusalem and educated ourselves and educate ourselves about how to behave in Jerusalem was only to prepare us for how to actually live in the real city. And that scenario, I think, is very similar to what is going on here in this great passage. The way that this future city is described with all of its amazing detail and symbolism corresponds with the virtues that God desires in us as his people now. And what we are going to do now in our life is grow in our knowledge of the Lord and in our walk with him in holiness. It can be looked at as preparation, readiness, for the perfect life that we will live then. That is why John says in 1 John 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself now, even as he is pure. In other words, God is preparing us to live, he is preparing us on this earth to finally live on that one. He's working in our lives in this city so that we might be at home in that city. 
And that's the way I am approaching this text. There are three ways that John describes New Jerusalem. And each description represents something God desires for his people now. And he will bring to an ultimate conclusion then. So what are these three descriptions? I'm going to give them all to you right now because we're going to look at them over the course of a few weeks. I think you'll be able to see them as we work through the text. In the first six verses of this passage, we see New Jerusalem as the Lamb's bride. Think of all the preparation and anticipation that takes place prior to a wedding. We, we ha- our, our time here at Gateway is punctuated by different weddings. And it's always fun to watch the bride and the groom prepare, and then they finally go through the wedding day and so forth. And, and uh, think about all of that preparation time. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that Christ loves the church as his bride, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her, so that on the wedding day, he might present the church to himself in splendor as a holy bride. This city isn't just a place, it's a people who have finally come into a realized, intimate union with God and the Lamb. It's the description of a wedding and New Jerusalem is the bride. Second, in verse 15, to the end of chapter 21, we will see that New Jerusalem is styled as the most holy place or as many of us have heard it growing up reading the King James Version, the holy of holies. That's what's going on in the rest of the chapter. That holy place in the temple where no one was allowed to go because it represented the holiest presence of God. In Israel's worship, that place was given by God in anticipation of this place that we're reading about in chapter 21. And in Christ, our bodies as individual believers and our church as a community are both identified as this place, this naos, this holy place in preparation for our arrival in that holy place. And finally, in the opening verses of Revelation 22, we see New Jerusalem as the return to Eden, an an even better Eden. The tree of life that we just read about is not just one single tree. I don't think it's one single tree in the Garden of Eden either in Genesis. It's a, the word tree there can mean wood, you know, like kind of tree, like a, a wood of the same kind of tree. There's probably more than one of them in the Garden of Eden. And there's certainly more than one of them in Revelation 22 because there are, they line the river coming out from the throne of God. And as we walk with the Lord in the beauty of his world and know something of the joy and love that he gives us here, It is only to prepare us for the sheer unbridled love and joy we will experience there. C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If I can be so bold as to amend this well-known observation by Lewis, I would say that if we as believers in Christ are still not completely satisfied despite the blessings of our salvation and the good gifts of God in this world, the most probable explanation is that we are being prepared for another world. 
So these are the three descriptions that I think we encounter in this really amazing text. And over the course of three Sunday mornings, I hope we can at least get a glimpse of the wonders that God has in store for us through these words. So with our time remaining this morning, let's take up this first description, the new Jerusalem as the Lamb's bride. And we'll work through these verses, verses 9 through 14. John says in verse 9, that one of the angels who had poured out his bowl onto the earth back in chapter 16 in the last great judgment of God upon the sin of the world right before Jesus' return spoke to him. And he said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Notice that he refers to the new Jerusalem both as the bride and the wife. I don't think there's a distinction here at all. In fact, a newly married wife is still referred to as her husband's bride. But an unmarried woman is not normally referred to as a wife until the marriage has taken place. So in the analogy, the marriage has already taken place. Now, as soon as the angel tells John that he will show him the bride, the wife of the lamb, John says in verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me... And what are we expecting before we see it? I don't know. But what he shows him is the holy Jerusalem, the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. John has already told us back in verse 2 that he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the bride is Jerusalem. And what does this mean? I mean, is is the bride's lamb a city? No, but the city represents the people who are going to dwell in the city with the lamb. His new relationship with them has already been inaugurated. You remember back in Revelation 19, I'll put the text up on the screen. John hears a great voice that describes, uh, he describes it as the voice of multitudes of people and like the sound of the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder. It's like one of the greatest cries in all of Revelation. And it cries out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give them the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. So this marriage or marriage supper, I think, I think both terms refer to the same event. In an ancient wedding, the marriage supper was the wedding. This is a special time after Christ returns to the earth that he will enter into a visible, personal relationship with his resurrected saints. To be invited to the marriage supper as a believer, uh, to, be, to be invited to the marriage supper is to be a believer with this hope in front of you. Because you know Jesus Christ and you have a hope in the resurrection. We're not told exactly when. There's no timeline in the back of your Bible, at least one that's inspired if you've ever looked for it, okay? We're not told exactly when this marriage supper will take place. Personally, I think it's sometime toward the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Though that view has its challenges, not worth going into right now. But what I can be certain about is that when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God, Christ... And his resurrected people will already be one. They will already be married, as it were. 
And this new holy city, this new Jerusalem, as one commentator summarizes it, will be the vibrant center of a redeemed humanity enjoying eternal communion with God. This new Jerusalem, called the bride and the wife, is adorned in a way that represents and celebrates the beauty and holiness of the Lord and his people. I mean, you have an idea of the kind of people who inhabit the city by the appearance of the city. It is so beautiful that you can sense John struggling to describe it. That's why he says in verse 11 that the city has the glory of God. Its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The glory of God is a reference to this brilliant glory that we read about in the Old Testament, a glory so profound that remember when the temple or the tabernacle was full of it, people had to scatter. They couldn't even be in there at the same time of the glory of God, this brilliant, shining glory. That's what it's referring to here. And John says that this radiance is like a most rare jewel, and he doesn't appear to be able to identify exactly what rare jewel it is, only that it's like what he's seen that's called a jasper, clear as crystal. I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't know your gemstones, you might struggle to fully appreciate all of the description in these chapters. Did you notice that? I was even struggling to, I was hoping, I, I hope you gem experts don't get on to me because of my pronunciation of, of some of those. I, I did look them up, but I'm not sure if I got them all right this morning. But John is trying to describe something for which there are no words. I mean, you gotta, you gotta feel for him sometimes. He was told at the beginning of the, of, of the book, right, write what you see and hear. And so he's trying to do that. And sometimes he's like, ah, okay. And he's trying to describe this for us. He's never seen anything like this, and neither have we. So he relates it to a jasper. Now, a jasper is not a clear gem-like crystal. Jasper is a colored stone, usually red, but it can also be found in orange and yellow and some other colors. It can also be multicolored like the kaleidoscope jasper, which is a kind of jasper found in Oregon, I'm told. So John is describing a radiance, the color of which strikes him as a brilliantly colored, yet crystal clear glory. That is the beauty of the city the bride of the lamb descending as the place where God will be beheld by his people and we will worship him. But of course, John is not finished describing this bride and I think that the next few verses continue to help us understand her significance. John says that the city had a great high wall with 12 gates. That is a gate of entry point into the city. When we think of a gate, it's common to think of the door or the wrought iron or the, 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 the thing that blocks the gate. But as we'll see later in the chapter, the doors of these gates are flung wide open. They are never closed. They're open for all eternity. And we will be able to enter freely at any time. Now, why does that have to be stated? I mean, why, why would God design this city so that there's gates there? It's, it's a reminder, a, a celebratory reminder to us that our fellowship with God is unending. It's always open at this point. And John says, at the gates are 12 angels. 
And these angels would appear to function as protection, keeping guard at the open gates. But there's no longer any reason to protect anything because there's no threat in this city. There's no evil entering this city. So the angels may be there again as a constant reminder that we are eternally safe. That, uh, that may also be there, I, I think they also may be there to welcome us into the city. But either way, they are part of the glory and the splendor of the scene. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? You got you to think, think of yourself walking through there, entering the gate of this radiant city for the first time, anticipating coming bodily before God himself, who knows you personally. I was thinking this morning, I wonder if any of us will be able to find each other before that. I mean, there's going to be millions of believers there. We'll be like, uh, hey, Barry, there you are. <laughs> Glad you made it. No, not really. Uh, you know, <laughs> I just happened to see him in the back. You know, Andrew, come over here, you know, and, and, and let's go. And, and we'll go together through these gates. We could agree to meet at one of the gates as we go in because the gates are named, you know. We could, we could maybe work this out ahead of time. Just like the ancient gates of cities were named. When we visited old Jerusalem for several days, we could walk in and out of the city through various gates. The, the Lion's Gate, uh, Joppa's Gate, which leads down to Joppa. Uh, the Damascus Gate, which leads to D- Damascus. But on these gates, notice, are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And he says, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And you may have already thought about the fact that in Numbers chapter 2, when God manifests his presence in the tabernacle in the wilderness, God tells them in Numbers 2 to line up the tribes on all sides of the tabernacle area, the standards and heads of, the, of, of all the tribes on the sides of those of the tabernacle. And there were three tribes to the east and the south and the west and the north. Here, these 12 tribes are represented by 12 points of entry into the city. But that's not all. John says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Imagine the foundation upon which a city sits. But then imagine another foundation under that foundation and another under that foundation and another under that foundation. Twelve foundation. That would be one rock solid city. And each foundation will be engraved with the name of one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Is the twelfth apostle Matthias who was chosen by the other apostles to replace Judas in Acts 1? You know the story. Or will it be the name of the apostle Paul? I have no idea, and I'm not going to go into that right now. But one thing I do want you to notice is that there are 12 sons of Israel. Their names are on the city at the entry points. And they're the names of 12 apostles. All of their names indelibly graved on the gates and on the foundations of the bride, the wife of the Lamb. You know what it shows us? It shows us that this city will be home to all believers from all ages from the age of the Old Testament saints represented by the 12 tribes of Israel to the age of the New Testament saints represented by the 12 apostles who took the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth for which we are forever grateful as Gentiles here in North America. We will come together as one people to fellowship together with God and the Lamb in this intensely beautiful, eternal city. 
people from every tribe and language and country and ethnic background who know Christ, our family members, our brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're all related to Him. It will be an aggregate of people whom the Lord has saved from all over the globe in all times, brought together in a relationship with the Lord so close and so intimate, it can only be described as a marital relationship. That is the new Jerusalem as the Lamb's bride. Now, I want to point one other thing out in closing, and it's an idea that occurred to me when studying through this passage, which helps us, I think, see how the Lord is preparing us now for eternity with him then. If you'll go back for a moment with me to John, uh, Revelation 21.10, John says that the angel carried him away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And you see the word spirit here capitalized, by the way. Uh, the word spirit is, is rarely, if ever, capitalized in the New Testament. You're always wondering uh, sometimes, is this the Holy Spirit or is this like the human spirit or the spirit of things? The word spirit has as much elasticity in the language in Greek as it does in English. And it leaves us to wonder whether this text is referring to the Holy Spirit doing something here or John is simply saying that in the spirit, in a vision that he is being transported. I, I don't know either way, but, but nevertheless, John gets there and he has this vision from the vantage point of a great high mountain. And he's able to see the city descending from this vantage point so he can describe it like a bride. Because if you think about it, John wouldn't, able to, he wouldn't be able to observe the city if he were on the earth looking up at it as it came down. He would only be able to see the underside of the city. But thinking about John going to this mountain and, and watching the city descend reminded me that there is another story in the Bible where someone was taken to a very high mountain and given a vision of cities. And if you think about it, this is an event that happened in Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation of Christ. Matthew here says, again, the devil took him, that's Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I think there are some striking contrasts between these two visions that you read about here, one in Matthew 4 and the other in Revelation 21. On a very high mountain, the devil showed the Son of God all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. But John is shown a single city on this high mountain with a radiant glory beyond comparison in which all of the redeemed from all of the kingdoms are represented. I want you to take note also that at this point in the book of Revelation on the new earth, all of those kingdoms that Satan was showing to Jesus in Matthew 4, as glorious as he could have made them sound that day, have all passed away. They are all gone, along with their pitiful, temporal glory. Well, the glory of this eternal city goes on forever and ever. Not only that, Satan offers Jesus a temporary reign over these cities whose glory would faint. And he says, I will give these cities to you. 
But the last verse of the long passage describing the new Jerusalem, I won't put the text on the screen, but it's 22 verse 5. It says that we will reign with God forever and ever. And there's something else. Satan says that the price tag for a temporary reign over kingdoms whose glory would fade is that Jesus must fall down and worship him. And Jesus is right to say, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. But likewise, when the angel finishes describing to John this glorious city in chapter 22, John is so overwhelmed that he falls down to worship the angel. This is the second time he's made this mistake in Revelation, if you remember. But the angel says to him in verse 9, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of the book. Worship God. And if I can close with this thought, we are tempted to think that there are some pretty glorious kingdoms in this life. There are political kingdoms, of course, but in our global village, there are kingdoms of commerce, finance, and entertainment, and possessions. I don't know. Whatever it is that Satan shows to you and says, I will give these things to you if you will fall down and worship me, if you will set aside your love for the Lord and your worship of him alone in order to pursue these lesser loves. In fact, Satan will tell us, you don't even have to give all of those up. Just add me also to what you are worshiping. Really, he just wants all our worship. But what do we learn about these other kingdoms in Revelation? We learn that they are ultimately rejected by God because they ultimately reject God and they persecute the people of God and they will all be brought to ruin because what they offer is not lasting nor satisfying. And in the end, if we grab onto them, we are only condemned. I have not taken the time this morning to call attention to this, but earlier in Revelation chapter 17, it was one of the angels who had the seven bowls who said to John, come, I will show you the identical language that you see in Revelation 21. There's obviously a connection here in the text that John is showing us. Come, I will show you. And what he shows John in Revelation 17 and 18 is the devastating destruction of the great prostitute who is the symbol in Revelation for all of the kingdoms of the world, the worldwide system of religion and commerce. And yes, Satan will be reigning over those kingdoms during the tribulation period, governing them through the beast and the false prophet, as we have seen. But no matter where you go in the world, when you have fallen secular government, you find greed and wickedness and immorality and injustice and temporary delights that satisfy people just long enough to dissuade them from trusting the gospel of Christ and condemn them to an eternity in the lake of fire. Don't give your heart to these kingdoms. They are depicted in Revelation as a great prostitute who is in bed with the rulers of these kingdoms who are drunk with the immorality of her prosperity and wealth and luxury and satisfactions. But in stark contrast to this grotesque and 
wicked prostitute who stands for the cities of the world. The same angel, one of the ones who had the seven bulls there in, in Revelation uh, 21.9, says the same words, come, I will show you. And this time, rather than the great prostitute, John beholds the pure and holy bride, the wife of the Lamb, a single, glorious, eternal city, the center of our fellowship with God forever. And this is where God is pointing our focus. He's pointing it away from the corrupt prostitute to the glorious, holy bride. There could not be a sharper contrast. This is where God wants to redirect our gaze. The new Jerusalem. If the cities of the earth frighten us, let's keep our eyes on this coming city where we'll reign with him forever, where there is eternal protection, where there is eternal joy and eternal goodness. If the cities of the earth allure us with their empty promises of lesser loves, then the Lord would say to us, let me show you something far better to come. And he shows this to us so that we can prepare our hearts for this eternal home. And by God's grace, therefore, we can be pure now in our thoughts and words and actions because what is coming is our true home. Let us anticipate the closeness we will know with the Lord by drawing near to him now. And let us loosen our grip on the allurements of the temporary kingdoms of the world, these earthly kingdoms whose paltry glory is laughable compared to the eternal, overpower, majestic glory of the new Jerusalem, which is our true and coming homeland. I trust that as we look closely at this city, God will work in our hearts to desire it and desiring it through the Holy Spirit, we will become like those people who will one day inhabit it with our God forever. Father, thank you for...